Please turn with me to Luke chapter 19 for our sermon text this morning. Luke 19 verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. For he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Almighty and living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, and that in our understanding we might believe, and by believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So this morning we are going to explore the gospel's mission impossible through the story of a wee little man. It's funny that uh, Steve was talking about uh, the uh, pulpit this morning. It is a little bit taller. I like my pulpits like I like my trucks, just a little bit higher than normal. Um, it's a tall guy problem. <laughs> so I must admit that uh, I am drawn to the story of Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man, right? For a wee little man was he, as the children's song goes. Why, right? It's not because I'm, I'm this six-foot-tall, rather large human, and I find this juxtaposition between big me, little him, uh, laughable. No, I'm drawn to this story because so many of God's greatest miracles come in small and unassuming packages. If the, Bible, if the author uh, of the Bible wanted to, wanted to fabricate an amazing story, I imagine our Savior would not have been born in a stable, surrounded with animals and all the smells that accompanied them. Right? If the Bible was written by men to impress men, I imagine the king of kings would have had a much more opulent and glorious beginning. But instead, the God of this universe chose a very unlikely woman who rode a, a very unimpressive steed, who was from a very unimpressive town, who gave, impress, who gave birth in an unimpressive stable behind a run-of-the-mill motel. This woman birthed a son in the lineage of King David. If you were paying attention in Mark's sermon from a few weeks ago, we learned a little bit about David, and perhaps he was the most small and unassuming of all of Jesse's sons to be chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. But this small David went on to defeat Goliath, and he became an example of faith in extreme circumstances. Right? Big things come in small packages. And this is the reason I love the story of Zacchaeus, right? Jesus' interaction with this character has huge implications. 
Look with me. We're going to start at the very end of this morning's passage. Look with me at verse 10. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is good news. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Right? This divine mission statement is one of the key themes that we find in Luke's gospel. Right? And and this uh, mission statement is the point of today's passage. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus did not take on human likeness in order for us to muster up enough goodness and muster up enough courage to satisfy God ourselves. Right? He came to find you and me and invite us into the fold. So as we walk through the story of Zacchaeus this morning, we're going to pay attention to a few big things in small packages. Right at first glance, um, we are, you might see that uh, the, the story of Zacchaeus warrants giving our attention to his conversation with Jesus, right? The two of them. But I think there's a third and often forgotten character that grounds this story within the larger Lucan narrative, right? The Gospel of Luke, the entire, uh, the entire book, maintains a consistent character, the crowd, right? And the crowd shifts its allegiance from supporting Christ, from supporting his followers and his message, to outright rejecting them at the end. This crowd is is consistently present in story after story throughout the book of Luke, yet it is rarely addressed in modern scholarship or, or even pulpits. This forgotten third character is necessary as we interpret Scripture because it reminds us of the communal aspect in our sanctification. Our life as Christians is meant to be lived out in the fellowship of believers. So this morning I'd like to focus your attention to three characters in the story, right? We have the notable collector, the notable crowd, and the notable Christ. The first big thing in, in a small package that we find is the notable tax collector, right? Look with me at verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. I find it interesting that we we often don't get the nitty gritty or the down low on on all of the uh, characters in the Bible. How many of us love to watch a really good TV show that draws out a character over many episodes and sometimes even many seasons? Because we love details. We love the story. They, they, you know, these details and these, this character development turns really good stories into absolutely great stories. And I don't know about you, but, but I find myself sometimes wanting more details, uh, you know, of, of the people that I read about in Scripture. But I want to argue for this morning that there is actually more to the story and more to the character of Zacchaeus in these first three verses than we might realize Right at first, it's pretty obvious. We, we, see, we see three things, right? He was small, he was rich, and he was a tax collector. But there's more. Our story begins in the city of Jericho. Right? Jericho was a large frontier city, and it was used as a major crossroad for carrying and trading goods. Right? And it wasn't just a busy place to work, but it was also well known for its beauty. Historian, you know, William Hendrickson, 
notes in his commentary that, that Jericho was a little paradise with palm trees and rose gardens and sycamore trees lining many of the streets and town. This city was a well-manicured oasis. Right, I want you to think real quick. Just think of some places that you have been on vacation. Right, Many of your favorite beach or mountain towns have well-lit streets with flowers lining the streets and cute little shops. Right? Perhaps there's a little mural or two on the side of an old historic building where you can stop with your family and take a picture to show to all your friends. Show to Facebook. Um, these places are often picturesque because they have the funds to make them pretty. Right? These, on, these funds come from taxes. And that's where our friend Zacchaeus comes into play this morning. He wasn't just any old tax collector. Right? Verse 2 says that he was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. Right? The unique title of chief tax collector helps us understand that Zacchaeus was an individual with prominent status. He was important right? because he had been placed at the head of the tax district in Jericho, an extremely wealthy trade city. Right? And so by now I'm hoping you're, you're beginning to connect the dots um, for, for, you know, for us here in America— Right, our big tax deadline was this last week, right? The dreaded April 18th of 2023 came three days later because of the whole weekend, which was nice. But um, tax season is a great, right? Don't you love it? Right? Some of us are maybe lucky enough to have people who take care of that for us, but we're still left scrambling to find documents in order to maximize that refund, right? Then there are those of us who do the whole TurboTax online thing, and, and we gather our documents, we gather our receipts, and we spend a few hours in front of a screen trying to calculate the dimensions of our home office, right? Trying to decide what miles we can deduct and how many dependents we can claim. How many kids do we have? It's excruciating for most of us. Nobody likes paying taxes. And don't get me started on what our tax dollars are actually being spent for, right? That's infuriating. And it was then, too. But in Jericho, there was no IRS, there was no mystical group of bean counters sitting behind screens, you know, with no faces. In Jericho, you had Zacchaeus. He was the man, right? Zacchaeus. He was the man that everybody pictured in their heads when that dreaded tax collection time came. When it came time to fork over that hard-earned income, there was this one face, Zacchaeus. But there's, there's more in here, too, about this guy. Zacchaeus was a telenai. He wasn't a, a fancy guy in a suit from Washington, D.C., sent to Houston to collect our taxes. Zacchaeus was one of us. He was a local, right? He was a Jewish man who worked with others in his district to collect the taxes that were then sent off to Rome. And this means that Zacchaeus was a traitor. He was one of us working for the man. He was a traitor on the deepest level. There's even more. The Bible says that he was rich. And he undoubtedly gathered a little bit of that tax money to, to line his pockets, but to what end? Right? Does money buy you happiness? Does money buy him happiness? I would argue that it does not. And in fact, Jesus has a few things to say about this. Before he entered Jericho, he talked about riches. Turn back with me to chapter 18, where Jesus is talking with the rich ruler. 
this guy approaches Jesus and, and he asks him, he goes, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? This guy has kept all of God's commandments. This guy has done things really, really well. And Jesus tells him, all right, go ahead and sell everything that you own and give it to the poor. This man became very sad when he heard this. So Jesus replied, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So fast forward to our story. What does this say about Zacchaeus? Right, He was a traitor. He worked for the man and he was rich. He was wealthy. This guy, according to Jesus' own words, was destined for disaster. Have you ever tried to fit your finger through the eye of a needle? No, that'd be absolutely ridiculous, right? Much less something that's much larger with four legs and a big old hump on its back, and it would take nothing short of an absolute miracle for Jesus to become the notable guy in our story. I want you to hold that thought for a minute, and uh, we're going to take a look at our next notable character in this story. We're going to talk about the crowd, starting in verse 3. Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now when we are talking about the story of Zacchaeus, right, we, we get this exchange between Zacchaeus and Jesus. We understand this. And if you grew up in the church, I'd be willing to bet, you know, as we're reading the story, how many of you have a song playing through your head? Zacchaeus was... A wee little man, right? It just plays through the head. You guys got it down. That's good. But I'd like to submit to you, as I said earlier, there's a third character in this story that we often forget. It's the crowd. And this character is developed as well. So what, what do we know about the crowd in our story? Well, the crowd was in Jericho, and the crowd was really big, right? Big enough that little old Zacchaeus couldn't see what was going on. He couldn't see what was going on, and this crowd had a reason for being there, right? This crowd had gathered uh, to see Jesus as he was entering the town of Jericho, right? And this is, he was on his way to Jerusalem, and, and this is the beginning of the end for Jesus, right? Like he was, he was going towards Jerusalem, where he would knowingly be laying down his life for those whom he calls. But this little bit of tidbit of information was only known to, to Jesus at this point, but the crowd was gathering because Jesus and his disciples had spent three years traveling from town to town to town, performing wonders and miracles and teaching. The Jews in Jericho came out to see what all the fuss was about. This was the guy who called himself the great I am. I'd like to toss out another thought for you about this Jewish crowd. I didn't find this in any commentary on the passage, so... Please feel free to take it or leave it. Um, but we do know 
that the Jews were excellent students of history. Right? Most of them knew the Old Testament stories really well. They were passed down from generation to generation, and they knew the stories of the wonderful things that God has done better than the back of their own hands. And can any of you recall what happened to Jericho in the Old Testament? There's actually a really catchy children's tune for that uh, story as well. Right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down, 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 down. The Israelites in this story were were entering into the land that God had promised them. And when they came to this city called Jericho, it was fortified. It had huge walls and scary soldiers, and they had no idea how they were going to get past this city and these people. Right? And what did God tell them to do? Something kind of ridiculous. He told them to gather their horns and and blow them and march around the city for seven days, and, and God would take care of the rest. And that's exactly what happened, right? God had done the impossible in this town of Jericho before. And I wonder, I'd like to think, like, did anybody in that crowd when Jesus was coming into Jericho remember what God had done there before? God had done the impossible in this city, and he was going to do it again. Now, the crowd wasn't just notable because it was large. Right? We also see that the crowd joins in this conversation between Jesus and Zacchaeus. We are told that when they saw Jesus approach this awful traitor, right? he's this awful tax collector, this awful sinner of a human being, what did they do? They grumbled. What? We, 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 we dropped everything that we were working on today, and we came out to, to see Jesus enter this town, and he's making an effort to talk to that guy? Yeah, I heard, I heard that Zacchaeus guy. He stole 100 bucks from me. Yeah, I remember that. And, and, and oh, I heard that Zacchaeus, he took 1,000 bucks from my Uncle George. That's ridiculous, y'all. Like, no savior of mine would hang out with a guy like that. Yeah, my friend told me, he, he saw Jesus recently, and Jesus said it was virtually impossible, impossible for a guy like Zacchaeus to get into heaven. What on earth is he doing talking to that guy? Most of us would like to think, you know, we, we insert ourselves into Bible stories, right? And so we'd like to think that if Zacchaeus came to Sugarland today, why he'd want to come over and have dinner with me and my family, right? But what if we're actually in the crowd instead? Would you be grumbling? Have you ever caught yourself grumbling? Man, that guy's too far left for me, that's for sure. He's too far left for saving. You, you guys have met my sister Sarah, right? She's, she's a tattoo artist, and there's no point in asking her to come to church. She wouldn't want to do something like that on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's guitars and drums. Preachers in jeans and t-shirts. Man, those Christians over there, they are not worshiping my God. Right? I want to propose to you this morning that we often stand shoulder to shoulder, confused and grumbling to one another about some pretty ridiculous things. And perhaps some of you feel safe this morning. You're like, whew, I got this, guys. Uh, The thought of grumbling would not even enter your head. And I know there's there's some of you here today. And that's amazing. But unfortunately, we still all fall short of that mark of perfection that God sets before us. 
right? And if, if that's you, if you've fallen short of this mark of perfection, I want to tell you, you have a home here at Good Shepherd. You have a home here in this church because we are a group of bumbling followers. Go ahead and look around, right? We, we try our best to follow God's will, and, and, but we aren't perfect, right? We put on our, our Sunday's best and we get ready. We do the hair. We put on the jacket. We look good on Sunday mornings, but we are all cracked and broken beneath this facade. And you fit right in. There's good news. The story isn't about us, right? The story of Zacchaeus isn't even about Zacchaeus. It's about our wonderful Savior, right? Who we need so very, very desperately. This morning, I want to turn our attention to our third and final character in this story, the notable Christ. Jesus is absolutely no stranger to grumbling. He, in fact, encountered a very similar situation to this back in Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Jesus then responds to these grumblers with three very well-known parables, right? The, the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son. Right? We call it the prodigal son. Each of these stories describes something extremely valuable that's been lost, right? And when each one of these treasures is found, there was a lot of joy and celebration. The God of this universe was standing next to a crowd of people grumbling, saying, stop. You guys have this whole attitude thing absolutely wrong. Join me in celebrating. The story of the prodigal son ends when the lost son returns home, right? And the father, he does what? He stops everything that he's doing. And he goes and he runs out to meet his son before he even gets home. He sprints and he embraces this, his kid. And he says, right, bring quickly. Get the best robe that I've got to put it on him. Put rings on his hand and shoes on his feet and go, go f- kill the fatted calf and let's eat it and celebrate. For my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he was found. And they began to celebrate. They threw a party. Why are we over here in our little corner of pietism, right? We're grumbling about Jesus going to be the guest of a sinner. Look with me at verse 8, back in our story. Chapter 19, verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Since he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The crowd is grumbling. They hate absolutely everything about Zacchaeus, and they can't understand why any human, why any person, much less the God incarnate, would want to give this hot mess of a man a quick minute. Why? Why did Jesus do this? The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This story all is nothing short of a miracle of God. 
God takes this camel with six-foot legs and a big old hump and tail and all, and he gently threads it through the eye of a needle. Did you catch that? We see that Zacchaeus' conversion was real. right? Christ was able to achieve exactly what he said was impossible. A rich young man entering into heaven. It's amazing. We see that this is real. We see this clear repentance with Zacchaeus. It's part of the character development of this guy as well, right? He turns from the wrong. He repents, right? The word repent is this turning away or turning 180 degrees from where you were going. And he turns around and he quits what he's doing and he tries to right those wrongs. Right? And he didn't just meet the demands of the law set out in the Old Testament to Jews. This guy doubled down. He gave half of everything he owned to the poor, and he took that other half, and, and he split it up, and he returned fourfold to what he stole from people and returned it to them. It sure looks like the Holy Spirit was alive and well in this guy, Zacchaeus. Unlike the the rich ruler in in chapter 18, right? Zacchaeus was completely excited. He was compelled by the Spirit of God to to give all of his possessions back to the poor, back to the people he swindled, back to the people that needed them. What is impossible with man is completely possible with God. Hallelujah. Right? For, for the notable Christ came to seek and save the lost. And he can do the impossible. That is good news. That, my friends, is the gospel that we talk about week after week. That is worthy of celebration, not grumbling. It's time to throw a party and celebrate. As as a children's and youth minister for the last almost 20 years, right, parents would often come to me and, and ask me, uh, you know, what, what children's Bible should I purchase for my kids? Right? You can go to a, a, a bookstore, a Christian bookstore, and there are shelves and shelves and books upon books of children's Bibles with cute little pictures. And the absolute amount of these things can be overwhelming. So they came to a pro, obviously, um, and asked me, hey, you know, what, which one of these is good? Right, And so the Bible that I would most often recommend to parents was called uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible for their little children. Right? And, I, and I love uh, the way this is put together because it strives to highlight this redemptive narrative throughout the Old and the New Testaments. Its author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, once explained why she wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible. She tells of a Sunday when uh, she was reading the story of Daniel to a group of six-year-olds during a Sunday school lesson. Right? And there was, there was one little girl right in the front row who was sitting particularly close to her as she was reading through the story of Daniel. Right? She was almost in her lap, and her, her eyes were bright, and her face was eager as she listened to the story. She was utterly captivated by this amazing story. She could hardly keep off the ground. Right? She was, she was kneeling and trying to get closer and closer to Sally, and And Sally read the story, and at the end of the story, there were no other teachers around in the room, and and she kind of panicked, right? She was like, what do we do now? I still have some time on the clock. And uh, she turned her mind on autopilot, and to her horror, she said, all right, kids, so what can we learn from this story about Daniel? 
And how does God want us to live? And as she said those words, she was looking at that little girl who was so excited, and it was literally as she had taken this huge weight and just put it on this little girl's shoulders. Right? She had broken some sort of spell. This, this girl crumbled right in front of her, physically slumping and bowing her head because that was a weight. Right? That was a story that Sally had never been able to forget. It's a picture of what happens to a child when we turn uh, a Bible story into a moral lesson. When we drill a Bible story down into a moral lesson, we make it about us and what we should be doing. But the Bible isn't mainly about us and what we are supposed to be doing. It does have parts of that in there, but the Bible is about God and what he has done for us. When we tie up this story into a a nice, neat little package and answer all these questions, we leave no room for mystery or discovery, right? We leave no room for the child. There's no room for God, right? There are, of course, I'm not saying that there aren't good questions that we should ask, and we should be asking questions. But when we say, now that's exactly what the story was all about, or, y'all, the point of the story is dare to be a Daniel, right? You heard that one before, right? Dare to be a Daniel. We are actually missing the points when that is the point of the story. The point of the story is not summing it all up or drilling it down or reducing it into this abstract idea. Sally Lloyd-Jones says that the power of the story isn't in the lesson. The power of the story is the story. And that's why she wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible, so that children could know what she didn't quite understand herself, right? That the Bible isn't mainly about me, and what I should be doing. It's about the glorious things that the Lord has done for you and I. The Bible is a story of how Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Right, we all know that Zacchaeus needed a savior. He was a really awful, terrible guy. We, we established that fact. He was an awful human being. And Jesus, he's, he's really good at saving awful human beings. Right? We see that over and over again in the Bible, but don't, don't forget The crowd was just as lost. The crowd needs the exact same Savior that went to go dine with sinners like Zacchaeus. The power of the story is the story. The Bible tells us that there was none righteous, no, not one. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is he who has the power to do the impossible. It is he who came to seek and save the lost. Both you and I are very, very, very lost. Have you been found? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this story that sometimes we just kind of gloss over in our Bibles. It's something we read to our children, and it's funny, and it's, it's entertaining about this short little guy. And, and Lord, we... We, we sometimes just don't even think much when we read your word. But Lord, we ask that this morning that this story would come alive in our hearts, that we would understand it is you who we put our hope and trust in, not ourselves. Father, you are good. We ask that you would give us grace and peace. And we pray these things in your holy name. Amen.